up, everyone? Welcome, welcome to the Art of the Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm super excited to be here again on Friday. Every single Friday for the last 82 weeks, I think we've been doing this. 82 weeks been, uh, been, been at, at, at this, uh, hanging out with each other, uh, taking it virtually. Um, but now things are coming back. Now people are beginning to travel more, live events are happening. Uh, speaking of live events, um, there's there's a few coming up, uh, but first, if you are in Denver, or if you, uh, you know, are from there and you're going to be there next week, May 23rd to uh, the 26th, let me know. I'll be in Denver during that time period. I'd love to, to meet up, uh, hosting an ML Ops community event on Monday, May 23rd at 4.30 p.m. at Denver Beer Company, and that is on Platt Street. Uh, so if you're able to make it out to that, please do that. Be excited to, to see you guys. So all my Denver people, uh, holler at me. Uh, the Denver Data Dude, who used to be known as the Seattle Data Guy, uh, I'll be hanging out with him, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, also supposed to be connected with Carly, so I'm looking forward to that as well. That's going to be fun, man. I'm excited to, to be there. A uh, huge shout out to my uh, younger cousin, Harshad. He is graduating today from Sac State University. What's up, man? Future generation right there. Got his bachelor's in electrical engineering and uh, told him to start pursuing some uh, or learning some Python as people because you know, it would be indispensable without that. Huge shout out to the sponsors for today's episode, the MLOps World Machine Learning in Production Conference. You guys need to check this conference out. Look, MLOps to me was always just this vague, mystical, dark art. I was just always a notebook data scientist, happy working out of my notebooks. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, a lot of that MLOps stuff kind of still is a, a a uh, dark art for me, but that's probably because you know I don't come from engineering background, um, and I never felt like it was something that was necessarily for me. Uh, but the more and more I begin to learn about MLOps, the more I begin to learn about this, this nascent field, the more exciting it is to me. The more uh, energized that I feel uh, by digging deeper into it, and I can't wait to learn more from June seventh through June tenth at the MLOps World Machine Learning in Production Conference in Toronto. Uh, live and in person in Toronto, yours truly is going to be there. Uh, I'll be presenting a demo of Pachyderm, my first time ever presenting live in front of a studio audience, um, and first time demoing the product. Not to mention that I've only been working at Pachyderm for like a month and a half, so I'm sure there's nothing that can go wrong uh, with me doing this. But I'm excited and happy to be doing it. Uh, so this conference is going to have over 300 machine learning and AI teams from all over the world. They're going to be sharing best practices around machine learning production. Uh, it's going to be a ton of virtual and hands-on in-person workshops to help you build out your ML skill set. They're going to be talking about how to build an ML platform from scratch, how to build real-time machine learning features with a feature platform, uh, model deployment with Ray, how to build uh, production ML monitoring from scratch, a beginner-friendly crash course on Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes, Kubernetes is awesome, but it is tough to learn, trust me, it's a pain in the ass. But with this uh, beginner-friendly course, I'm sure you'll be able to pick that up uh, with no problem. A lot, a lot, a lot more going on at the conference. Be sure to check it out. Uh, we've got sessions that are even aimed at helping you understand business strategy while diving into the technical aspects of uh, machine learning as well. So check it out, Machine Learning Ops, ML Ops Conference, ML Ops in production uh, in Toronto, June 7th, June 10th. Be sure to check that out, guys. Uh, but yeah, in-person events are live, they're back. Uh, 
I think there's a couple people here that I've met in person, Kenji being one of them, uh, Serge as well, definitely these gentlemen in person. Uh, one of these days we'll meet Russell and Naveed and Vin, Eric and Vijay in person as well. Uh, but super excited uh, to kick this off. If you're watching on LinkedIn, if you're watching on YouTube or on Twitch or wherever it is that you're watching and you've got questions, feel free to drop your questions right there in the chat. Be happy to get to them. Um, but since we're talking about in-person and, and I just like uh, being in-person nowadays, what's lost with virtual communications? What is lost? What is something that gets lost in translation with uh, virtual communications? Karen, go for it. So I think right there is a perfect example where you're like, Ken, go for it. And I have to unmute myself. I have to like rethink about what I'm saying. There's this little bit of friction that doesn't come as naturally in conversation. You have to like sort of wait for other people to finish talking rather than continuing thoughts. And I think for me, that's a really important thing when you're riffing off other people, when you're doing idea generation, not as big a problem when you're trying to report something, but I am someone who very much feeds off of the creativity of others and the kind of snowball effect is very powerful for me. And I feel like that's very, very difficult to do on Zoom or on any of these other platforms. Um, you know, I was with a lot of creators the last couple of weeks and it felt like there was just like a spigot going on with the ideas just continually flowing. And I think it was just because there was that lack of latency between one idea flowing into another that, that I really relish. And I'm trying to figure out ways to do more and more of this it's a little hard being uh, you know a thousand miles away from everyone else uh but it probably means i'm going to be traveling quite a bit more ken thank you so much uh let's hear from uh let's hear from some from surge on this and if anybody else wants to chime in i'd love to hear uh what you think is lost with uh, virtual communications Go for it, Serge. well uh there people don't understand your context as well because if you're in the same room, you're, you're, you know, it's the same lived experience at that moment in time. Uh, but, you know, when you're like somewhere else, you don't understand what's going on, you know, that perhaps, you know, my dog is distracting me or, you know, like uh, something else is going on at the same time. And so it's, it's, it's really tough at the same time. I think it is, it does open the door for distractions, speaking of distractions which is not as present you're you're like i think a bit you're more present when you're with other people in person i think it's really yeah. hard to be equally you know present when you're not yeah it's very hard to like just pretend like you're paying attention when really you're looking at a bunch of tabs on uh, on your screen it's easy to do that uh, through virtual communication but yeah definitely 100% agree with you on that you definitely are uh, forced to be more in the moment and, and actually listen to the person. Eric, let's hear from you. Uh, by the way, huge shout out to everybody else in the room. Uh, Vivian, good to see you again. Uh, Vijay, Vinh, it's just uh, sorry, uh, Russell, Ken, and also Eric Sims, who is going next. Go for it. All right, maybe I'll just be contrarian. <clears throat> so I think, so what, what Ken's talking about is totally valid and it's a pain that like I have to wait until, you know, there's that time when two people kind of talk over each other for a second and then we all kind of have to like stop and wait and then like nose goes for who's actually going to say the thing that they were going to say and it's a pain but like i think part of that is like that zoom is like the dominant tool in the 
space. Like there are other tools like proximity chat that two people can talk over one another just fine. You can ha 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 and people will hear you and it's not like unmute ha 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 and then like go back to silence or whatever, you know. And so like I think that there are tools that could be used that aren't used. Like pro proximity chat is so cool. I don't know if you've ever used it, but it's it's cool like in that like if I turn my head this way and you're behind me on the screen, you won't hear me as much versus it. And if I move my character closer to you, you will hear me. Um, and if I move away, you won't anymore. So it's in that way, it's more like, you know, like real life. Um, and I can't wait until, you know, I can meet in, I, I like VR. So I want to meet in VR um, and be able to maybe have a photorealistic avatar like I have right now. We'll see. I don't really care so much about that, but so that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing about context, though, is I don't think people are paying as close of attention as we're like saying, like, oh, they're they're forced to pay attention they're, because they're in the same room. Like, no, they're not. People are tappity tapping away on their computer. They're distracted all the time. I know that for sure, because I'm distracted all the time uh, in, in person, like meetings and stuff, too. So, like, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one anyway, if I am. Sorry to everybody who's ever been in a meeting with me. Um, but if not, then we're all human. But <clears throat> I do agree, though, like where we are right now, we definitely still have like room to improve, especially like in the. I mean, asynchronous chat, asynchronous is a is a big thing. Like <clears throat> if you want to know, it's like, uh, do you write out your thoughts clearly enough that somebody can grab your train of thought answer your questions, maybe even run with it. If you suddenly had to, you know, log off from work for two weeks and were, were you able to like compose your thoughts off? It's just like trying to read somebody's comments in a, in a half written notebook or something like that. And, you know, I think, I think that we have a lot of room to improve and grow in there because I mean, we've been at it for a couple of years of trying to like being forced to like work together virtually. And I, I think we just have a lot of room to improve and, I hope I hope you embrace that. Eric, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to Alistair Kroll, uh, co-author of Lean Analytics, and this is the very, very beginning of the pandemic. I think we're probably talking in June of 2020. And he had mentioned that uh, Zoom should not be number one right now, but for whatever reason, it is, uh, which is interesting. I did not know that there were alternatives. Like I. Like the only alternative I know to Zoom is uh, is is like Microsoft Teams, and that's not that great an alternative. Uh, speaking of conferences, Zoom was just to say we should create our own conference uh, and he'll line up sponsors, and that can be hard to sell. Well, hopefully, Ken and I uh, make this happen. The uh, the the Data Community Content Creators Award um, will not be doing it with Kate this year. Um, Ken and I are in talks to see if we can uh, make this happen. So keep an eye out for that. We will be uh, we'll be bringing more details. Um, let's go to Russell and then after Russell, uh, I guess we'll go to Vijay and then um, I'm just gonna uh, put you on mute Vijay while we wait for uh, Russell and then Vivian, I'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, so we'll go Russell, Vijay, then Vivian, go for Russell. Thank you, Aubrey. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, so I've got a, a, a two-pronged approach to this. Firstly, when you're in the company of somebody in real life, you you get to you get to see the benefit of all of the, you know, the the micro actions of, of a person. You get to see the whole person's body for a start. You know, you have. Can you hear me? Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, so you have ultimate confidence that they're wearing pants or trousers for a start, which is always a good thing. Uh, but you know, body language and uh, you know the micro facial expressions and and pauses in speech. It's just it's better to be, you know, have that without the latency of uh, virtual communication, which is usually great, but not always. So then the other side of it is dependent upon the uh, the, the tech that you're using. You know, you're reliant upon the ISP connection, reliant upon your actual laptop or, or tablet or phone or whatever you're using on the app or the software you're using, uh, and then the hosting system of the app or the software you're using. So there's far more uh, opportunities for error in that. Uh, and I'm a perfect example of this. I mean, if you if you look back on uh, any of the times I've been talking on these chats, more often than not, my camera paints me out. And you know, I can assure you all in real life, I don't just disappear in the middle of a, a conversation. You know, I'm present for the uh, for the whole thing. Russell, thank you so much. Uh, let's go to DJ and then Vivian. Uh, let's let's go to Vivian and then oh well Vivian, can you, yeah can you hear me now. yeah oh, sorry yeah. I was on mute yeah uh, glad to join you I'm in transit I am um, I was driving from uh, Pennsylvania to New York City so uh, it was a break so I thought uh, I'll I'll just drop you know just to hear um, it was a good topic some of the points were already covered uh, to me the important portion that we miss in, in the virtual meetings is the um, when you are in the room, you can see whether someone is getting your idea or not, right? And you can change your thought process. If somebody is not getting it, maybe you want to say in different way. Uh, if you are on the virtual call, it's since you don't see, you, you don't know whether the way you're communicating is, is getting across uh, to other people or not, right? So I think that, that's the biggest uh, uh, piece. Another comment that was made earlier, I have noticed, and I, I'm myself culprit of that, is that when we're virtual, we think we're in the meeting, but we're doing you know, multitasking. That's <laughs> hardly of the time. Um, and I, I choose to do multitasking where uh, if I my voice is important, I, I am not multitasking. But if I'm just listening, then you know, I, I can say I'm, I'm still can listen and I can pay attention. Uh, basically to do that. Uh, one other thing that in our office environment, we are using it, Mural. I don't know the, how, many of, how many of you are using Mural, M-U-R-A-L, um, which is a, basically a tool. You can work in a very interactive way through that. Um, it's, it's a chatting and you can draw uh, whatever you want. Other people are able to see at the same time. They can zoom in and zoom out. Uh, it's pretty powerful. Uh, we have been using in our office fairly regularly it's a pretty powerful tool to get and that way you can see who's interacting or not and literally whoever is in that room where they're drawing and doing you can see who's doing what so then you can see that everybody's engaged in that you know discussion and idea generation all those things because they're pulling their cursor you can see everybody is there so i think that is one of the tools i have seen uh, effective Thank you very much. Yeah, I will have to look into that. A lot, of, a lot of great technology out there making this virtual uh, working easier, more streamlined. Thanks for sharing that one. Let's hear from uh, Vivian. Vivian, good to see you. Uh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, 
I missed the beginning of the question, so I hope, and like some of the earlier responses, so I hope that this it hasn't just been said already and everybody's going to think I'm done. But I actually think that there's lots of things that are better virtually. Like I um, did like a whole, you know, data science boot camp and stuff right after I started that, right after COVID began. And I liked it better because it was easier to like code along and stuff. Like the instructor would like put his screen up on Zoom and then you could have your screen right next to his screen and like be coding along and stuff. And that that's the sort of thing I like a lot instead of having to like hover behind someone's shoulder while they're like clicking on things, trying to like see what they're doing or something. I think that's legitimately easier to do virtually and have someone's screen up on your monitor. Um, and I was also going to mention Mural because I think that Mural is a use case where I legitimately find it like better and easier to collaborate um, than doing like physical sticky notes on a whiteboard and stuff. Cause that's, that's at work. What we have used mural for is like those kind of like brainstorming events of like, okay, everybody like come up with ideas. Let's like generate ideas. Let's everybody put your ideas on a sticky note and then we can like group them together and find themes and discuss the ones we like best, that sort of stuff that you would normally in person do with physical sticky notes and then be moving around and stuff. But Mural is so nice. I like it so much better. And then you have this record kept forever that everyone can refer back to. And like, you know, then then when I go about my work and I'm, and I'm you know, trying to think about what, you know, kind of analyses would be like helpful for people, then I can like go back to the Mural and see what were the things that everybody brainstormed about what we'd like to know more about with our product and stuff like that. And then I, I have that record of that mural. It doesn't get lost with these like physical stickies that, you know, some manager takes and puts in a drawer or whatever. Um, anyway, so yeah, those are my thoughts. Thank you very much. Ken? Yeah, I just have a thought and not, not to like, to go contra to what you're saying here, but isn't, sort of the the benefit of these tools is that we can use them asynchronously asynchronously and we can also use them in person like aren't they more powerful or in i've never used mural so i could be completely wrong but isn't um there an added benefit of being around people and using this because you do get that continuity um same thing with maybe even like coding in a classroom setting i actually 100 percent agree with you i prefer i went from um exclusively in-class education to online education and, and got a far better experience. But I thought that that was the fault of the organization and the professors, right? Like there is a definite way that your professor could be coding on screen and be sharing their, their screen with you on your computer in the classroom setting, as well as on the, the non-classroom setting or like the virtual setting as well. Right. Um, so I, I would, I would state that these tools can be just as useful in person as they can be um, asynchronously. And I, I quite enjoy using them in person. I'm also very extroverted. So I found that that's a, uh, a very, uh, you know, a, a, an amplifier on my part. One thing I did want to bring up is, I forgot what it was. It's the 738, 55% rule that I just recently read about. I'm reading never split the difference. And apparently 7% of information is communicated via our words. 38% is communicated with our tone of, and 55% is communicated with our body language. So something that I've been doing, I, my, my camera zoom is actually a little further out than everyone else's. 
And that's because I find that there's extra value communicated by just having my entire body in frame rather than just my head. Um, that's something that I think, I don't know if it actually works. There's no concrete evidence that I've been able to communicate better because of that, but it's just something little that I picked up associated with the virtual communication part that is hopefully starting to blend a little bit more with what we would experience in a person-to-person -person setting. So, you know, take that or leave it, but I thought that was sort of an interesting observation or, or, um, or, or look at something. I like that too. Uh, kind of moving further away um, and then kind of exposing more. I like that. That's great. Um, Costa, let's hear from you. So uh, when it comes to like, there's, uh, I, I try to like differentiate between like work and say conferences, right? Um, so now with work, I, I'm liking the hybrid style, right? Using tools like we use Miro, Miro board, um, which is probably similar to Mural by the sounds of it. Uh, we use that at work occasionally for like sprint retros and stuff where we want to brainstorm. Um, and being able to do stuff digitally is quite powerful because we have we have experts in Sydney as well as people in Brisbane, people in Melbourne, right? And we're able to work whether we're in person or whether we're in uh, in in you know uh, interstate. We're able to work well as long as we're all at the same time with the same board, right? We can access it digitally. And even when we're in person, we just have a big screen in front of us with that on, and each of us has our laptop, so you can still interact with it, right? Um, and we've found that works pretty well either way, just like Ken's saying, but then there's the other side of it, right? There's conferences. I'm in Australia. Do we get machine learning and data science conferences? Basically, no, right? We've just never had had them. Um, we've had one or two. I think Neurops was supposed to be here in 2020, but the pandemic had different, uh, you know, different ideas about that. But like, it, we rarely get conferences, and the value of having conferences in person is massive. Right, and and doesn't matter how many digital conferences are now available to us, um, it, it does still take away some of that interaction with the rest of the with the rest of the community at a direct level. Like a lot of it, it comes down to just physical networking, right? Like I, I did a GTC, a couple of the GTC full day courses. Now, if I was doing that in person, um, just the conversations that happened in person would have been very different to and and much less limited to the conversations I had in the side chat with you know one or two other people um and plus it was at ridiculous hours right it was uh, like I was starting my day at, at 11 p.m finishing it at five five in the morning um I would rather have flown out to the conference in person to do it right so there's a, there's all these things that are uh, that are slightly different and I think we are still missing that uh, this, the other side is we do have other conferences and forums like, like this one, right? Pre-pandemic, it would have been much less likely that I would have looked to things running internationally to say, hey, let's, um, let's take part in that. Uh, so th there's always like plus or minus, but I don't think we can ever get to that point where we're completely replacing uh, in-person conferences with a digital component. Danny Ma, you have got to make conferences happen in Australia. You have the power to do so. Uh, huge shout out to everybody else in the room. Uh, Tina Wang is in the building. Tina, get to, get to have you here. Uh, Mikiko is also here. What's going on, Mikiko? Um, so just uh, for, for you guys, Mikiko and Tina, we're talking about uh, what's missing from in-person 
uh, communications. And uh, it's interesting because uh, Ken just released a video earlier today with, uh, with Luke and Tina talking about, uh, I guess the, the title was the value of in-person communications or something to that or, or meeting up. So uh, definitely check out Ken's video. Um, I'll find a link for it and I'll drop it in the chat for you here. Um, let's go to Ben. Uh, let's hear from Ben. And then we got a cool question coming up from uh, Navi here that will touch on Navi's question it has to do with uh, uh, senior folks like 10 to 15 years uh, plus pivoting into data science leadership roles, uh, but are still used to be asked questions like, you know, hard tableau, things like that. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for that. We'll go to, uh, we'll go to Navi um, as we wrap up this conversation. Then go for it. Yeah, I guess my perspective is kind of weird. I worked with really large companies before the pandemic and even before I started my business. I mean, back to like the polycom. I don't know if everybody remembers them, like those triangles that you had on the conference room table where you would make phone calls and there'd be, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of going back there, but like that was the original. And if you worked in a multinational, like that was, especially when we were doing the offshoring and outsourcing, you know, in the early 2000s, it was, that was how you communicated because you had a meeting at the end of the day to hand off your work to somebody else in a different time zone so that you could work 24 seven, basically developing 24 hours a day. So you'd have a handoff meeting at the very beginning where you took on work and you'd have a handoff meeting at the very end of the day where you handed off work to somebody else. And, you know, you got really good at no video at all having to do it over the phone and you know you couldn't like we would when phones finally got cameras on them and you could send pictures via email through your phone that was like groundbreaking because i could do whiteboarding click a picture and send it to somebody before that we were doing like screen you know screenshot shots in paint so i mean i think we got really good at having no tools and then you know google hangouts showed up and microsoft teams and the video chat sort of showed up and helped make remote possible and i've like, i've been working remote since i started my business in 2012 and being in regional offices being in corporate offices with you know, multi-time zone regional offices i think some of us just got good at it and so when the pandemic hit, we just transitioned into something that we knew pretty well. And so when I look at what did we lose, you know, as long as I've had an existing relationship with people, like I've met them in the past, or I've worked with them for a very long time, didn't really lose anything because we knew each other, we understood each other. And that's kind of the nice, it's the nice uh, part about having long-term clients is just really having those long relationships everybody knows each other, understands each other. And even when I'm dealing with new people, the, you know, somebody can clue them in and go, no, 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 he didn't mean that. Or no, so this is, you know, some backstory and some history. And I think that's the difference now is there's, we've got a couple of generations that didn't grow up that way. We've got a whole lot of startup generations that, you know, all they've ever had is that office where it's like that office and nothing else, or maybe two offices total. It, there's this chasm because I know the people that I work with at large companies, like the difference between work from home and being in the office was almost zero that we didn't really notice it that much. So I think that's, I guess that's the perspective I wanted to bring in is I really hearing people say it's different and, you know, there are things lost. It's kind of strange to me because I didn't, I think I just live in a world where that didn't happen. 
Can, can I ask then just to kind of piggyback on that? How much of that is to do with like how long you'd been at that company or with those relationships, right? Like we're seeing the cycle rate of people moving companies a lot higher now than it was say 10 to 20 years ago, right? like significantly. So you're seeing the average lifetime of a developer at a company, maybe two years, right? Two to three years, even at really good work culture companies, just because that's the way things are going these days, right? Like I started a job mid pandemic and I ended up moving to Brisbane to get to know people in person more, uh, you know, and, and that helps. And then now I'm comfortable to go back. Now that I know them in person a bit better, I'm comfortable to go back to Sydney or whatever and work remotely and that's all fine. But I needed that initial uh, extra, uh, I guess, interaction before you can get to that point. So how much of that is relying on that existing, hey, I've been working with these people for 10 years and I know them really well. You know, it's a lot of, yeah, it's definitely established relationships, but I also work with a different age group for the most part, which is you learn differently generationally because technology was different. And we had to do, like I said, with the, you know, with the polycom, we had to figure it out over the phone. And if you, you know, you learned not to take things personally because you had no idea what the context was. And so you'd have side conversations you know, we would have sometimes two or three conversations going on. And I think that's it is that we learned how to make relationships with people that we probably would never meet. I mean, there were offshore teams that I managed for two years in India that I never met any of them, which was lame, but you know, there just wasn't a travel budget. So never got to meet any of the people on my team. Like I said, it was lame, but we made it work because we had to, we just figured it out. So I think, like I said, I think that's the difference is, yeah, it's, there's definitely the length of relationship that I have with clients, but it's also the age group that we're all in. And the fact that we had to go through the sort of remote adolescence, we had to make some really janky stuff work. And we made all the huge mistakes that, you know, everyone's sort of learning from now. We made them all with way worse technology. And so we had a longer time period to figure it out. I, I really think like, this is just an old person, you know, different perspective that being my age and I guess growing up with the lack of technology, <laughs> I think that's, you know, as much as it's rarely a benefit, I think in this just one instance, being old was good. Back in Wednesday, we used to call it telecommuting. Telecommuting, yeah. Uh, if anybody else has anything to, uh, to add here, I'm more than happy to, to hear from you guys. Uh, Kiko or Tino or Tom, if you guys want to chime in here, let me know. I was talking about, you know, kind of the pros and cons, I guess, now of, of uh, the virtual communications. I guess, what are you looking forward to? What are you, how do you contrast this in-person versus uh, a live kind of scenario? After knowing so many people, I guess, from, from virtual, like, like Vivian's saying here, uh, would not know any of us if it was not for the virtual, which is true. Um, so I guess really <laughs> interesting question is what's it like meeting somebody from camera to to uh, in person? I guess that's, that's an interesting thing. Um, if anybody has anything to say, let me know. Uh, if not, we can go to another uh, uh, question. That's an interesting question. I think that kicked off a good debate. Uh, Eric Sin says, "You find out how tall other people are." Yes. That is true. Um, 
so I think I, I had a conversation with somebody uh, earlier this week who reached out to me um, and has a lot of experience in consulting across different industries. Some of that is like BI, IT related, um, who's kind of struggling with getting, a, you know, I would say a little bit more data-centric roles on the leadership side. Um, and he's somebody who has at least 15, 20 years of experience leading teams, you know, so somebody who's very capable. And the issue that he runs into, and I'm sure a lot of other people like him run into, is that he doesn't have some of those buzzwords that uh, some of the data scientists on their team would have, you know, like um, some things in Tableau or Python or machine learning or whatever, 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 right? And it's a challenge because even though he wants to kind of pivot there, he can't because he doesn't have those technical skill sets. Now, the problem is in his job, he would probably not be building Tableau dashboards or coding, right? So it's just like, do you know this or not? And I, I guess I don't know when you write a lot about this stuff. And, um, but, you know, what is kind of a good way for them to be able to do justice to their experience, but also be able to pivot in that direction? And, you know, I, I'll do what I can in helping him kind of, you know, uh, share his resume wherever I think I can. But I think it's a legit question for a lot of folks who are, you know, and, and the industry is like struggling to find people at this point. Like right now, it's just, you know, nuts right now to get anybody and anybody through the door. So it, there is this big disconnect of who they think they want and who can actually do the job. So the question, I guess the question if I could kind of distill it down is how can somebody who's gotten 10 to 15 years of experience and maybe a kind of a, a role where they were uh, doing some type of analytics or, or BI type of stuff, how does that person transition into leadership of more technical people that have yeah. a different set of capabilities? Or like, let's just say in, in this case, he is he considers himself more as say, a BI slash IT person. Um, so he's good with analytics. He's good with numbers. He also is a storyteller. He likes to consult. So he could pivot himself in a more predictive analytics space, if I may say so, right? I, don't, I, I think I've worked with leaders like that who have come with similar backgrounds. Um, but well, I think, if he's yeah. applying to those roles, they might say, oh, he does not have machine learning on his resume. He does not have, you know, X, yeah, Y, and yeah. Z on his resume, which is totally irrelevant to the job that he'll be doing. Yeah. Um, let's, go to, let's go to Vijay. He has hand up. And then after Vijay, uh, we'd love to hear from, from anybody else who'd like to chime in, but uh, maybe Tom or Tina or Nikito, uh, Vin. Anybody that wants to jump in after the day, just let me know. Just like use the handers icon on Slack, and I will add you to the queue. Uh, go for it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, so that's really uh, a good scenario. I can I can see that uh, playing well. One thing I can tell you is that that person who has fifteen years experience, let's understand what is the strength that person brings in. The strong domain knowledge, right? That is strength, you cannot gain that 
easily. So he has or she has that strength coming with that much experience. The second thing is I heard that storyteller. That person has basically strength there as well, right? That's a key element of that. And he or she has a background in, um, you know, the IT and BI. For me, I mean, there is some fundamental work that has to happen. There's, there's no shortcut, right? So I would see that if someone really wants to get into, you have to get into the water, right? This is, you cannot sit outside and just imagine things will happen, right? So if, if you want to get that, get into the water, that person is senior enough that they can carve out a problem, right? Take one problem, you have a domain knowledge, let's try to solve the problem using data science, a simple one, it doesn't have to be complicated, right? So I think a real practical experience, I would say that you got to get the water, get your you know toe and hands all feet wet um, and start small and getting into that. I would say that get a mentorship, right? So even your senior, I can tell you that, you know, I have gone to the learner people from less experience than I in a certain technical skill area, have a mentor, you know, selected. It could be a data scientist. You know, it doesn't have to be that since you're senior, you cannot have a mentor, the person who's a data scientist, right? Very open, have a mentor, get the direction from that person, lay out some plan, basically take a simple problem, especially if you have a domain knowledge, you know, somebody working finance, sales, any other area, they can pick up a problem in that space. So I would say, get someone as a mentor and then, you know, pick up a business problem, get into the water, solve this small problem, show the value, get the confidence, and I think slowly and slow, you know, it got to be a plan, right? It is not only three months or one month that it has to be planned. So that's my advice. Okay. Jay, I hope so he's much. watching this. Well, you can always send him a recording. It's mm -hmm. going to be on YouTube live and direct right after this. It's also on the podcast. And um, speaking of podcasts, we release a lot of cool episodes. Uh, especially um, conversations like this. So be sure to, to check them out. Uh, let's hear from, from Serge. Um, and then after Serge, Vin, would you like to go after Serge or uh, Tina or um, Kiko? Um, or maybe I'd love to hear from you Go for Serge. Yeah, well, um, I think there's, there's two kinds of leaders in my view. There's uh, really like the administrative kind of leader. And then there's a technical like leader in which is really on top of all the technical details. Either way, I think the, the biggest value brought in by, by leaders of any kind is, is not the technical skills, it's the soft skills. Um, all the things like communication, coordination, uh, problem solving, and so on. Of course, it's important that they understand the subject matter uh, well enough to weigh in. So like it, it does vary, I think, even though it's, it's probably more towards soft skills than hard skills. I think there still has to be a little bit of hard skills if it's an administrative leader and a lot more if it's a technical leader. And, and that, that will vary. Uh, so I, I find it kind of odd that it's kind of seen as such, such a requirement on that level. Um, and uh, I, as, as, you were talking about the transitioning and that, that I kind of can, can connect it with my own experience because I have a lot of experience prior to transitioning into data science. 
and it, it's 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 a really bizarre thing for me to be the, the way people kind of evaluate experience moving in uh, is different as someone that's purely entry level because someone asked me the question um, you know how much experience you have in data science it always trips me up because I don't know what to tell them you know uh, you know how long have I been you know exploring data you know. How many, how, how long have I been analyzing, you know, uh, doing, you know, statistical analysis on data or making reports or using Python or, or machine learning, you know? So the amount of years I can equate to each one could vary anywhere between 20 years and, you know, like five, right? So it's really hard to say, but sometimes what they really mean is how long have you been in roles that say data science on it? And I think I mentioned this to Tom the first time I met him, but I mean, if you're valuing me for that, it's only like three years. And even then, uh, I've recruiters recently, you know, I've have reached out to me and, and they, you know, I'm, I say, well, if I were to transition from the role I have right now to something else, it, it would have to be, you know, a step up. It would have to be something more leadership. And they say, well, we wouldn't consider you for leadership because you've only been a data scientist for three years. Right. And my management experience has been in another field. Right? Like if, you know, managing web developers is much different than managing data scientists. You know, mm -hmm. I did that for six years. So why can't I do it, you know, for data scientists? So I, I find it, a, you know, really, really iffy the, the way yeah. these things are. So I, I think the, to sum things up, I don't think uh, have the, the concern should be, you know, what skills do I need to prove? Um, you know, it's just, can, can there, there's probably one skill that I think is more important to prove than anyone else. It's not like, okay, has to be an expert in R or an expert in Python or expert in, you know, every single BI tool out there. No, it's more of a question of, can they be an expert in communicating findings right. in organizing projects? So in that sense, you know, doing like the end and end to end pipeline is a good exercise just to say, okay, I can handle an entire data science project. I know what it's involved in it. It's, it's not so much. Okay. I can, I can be the best at the, at the, at the programming part or the best at the, you know, data exploration part. It's just more like I can make sure that the whole thing is properly orchestrated. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the maturity that is needed for the interviewers who are, who are there. I had a, I had an interview, I don't know, somebody few months back and he was like, how long have you been doing data science? I was like, kind of all my life basically, you know, I wasn't called data science then. And then he was like, okay, tell me what you've been doing. So I just said a few things. And then he goes, but how long have you been doing data science? And I was like, what do you mean what data science? You know, so it was like, so there's this lack of understanding of what is actually needed to do the job. So I, I totally agree with, with what you're saying, but the, the problem is either you're working with say a recruiter or you're working with somebody who's like a little bit more on HR, they don't know those nuances. And if they don't see those three things on their resume, you would lose like a lot of good candidates because there isn't somebody kind of, you know, has, has the nuance of saying that. But I, I've had, like technical managers and non-technical managers. And 
they bring their own strengths in each way, right? So it's easier to go to a technical manager and say, okay, I'm having issues with this model. What do you think? A non-technical manager would be like, I, I have this model, it's not working. Can you get me somebody, you know, whatever. So, but, but I think we are kind of losing a lot of good folks, sadly, because we have some interviewers that are, you know, that just are not experienced enough to understand those nuances. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think we, we had like a similar conversation about like a, a year ago around the topic of, uh, the, the right candidate for a tech lead or should somebody who's not super technical as an engineer move into a tech lead type of role and what's the perception that team would have of that person. Uh, and you know, if, if it, I remember them saying that conversation was that for like people who are engineers, like they want their leader to be an engineer or somebody who has gone through mm -hmm. uh, those ropes because it, there's that credibility or, or, or something to that extent there. Um, but let's, let's hear from Mikiko and then uh, again, I'd uh, love, to, love to hear from you on this because now we're kind of, we're not necessarily talking about like engineers, we're talking more as analytical, data professional type of stuff. Um, but yeah, still love to hear from you then uh, after Mikiko. Mikiko, go So I do kind of feel like, because we're, we're kind of going through like something similar where we're, or not quite similar. So basically we're going through hiring, right? And we're trying to hire at like, the staff up level, um, you know, like minimum is senior, but we're actually trying to hire staff up. And like, there is a difference between staff and senior in terms of like scope of leadership responsibilities. Um, but also too, like, it depends on the company. Like, so some companies, for example, like they'll kind of put all the strategizing, like from a technical tech stack perspective, like into the tech lead or the staff and up sort of, you know, um, ladder, I guess. Um, and so you'll have some companies where like, there's an expectation that the manager is like both a technical leader and also does like the human element operations team side of it. But there's some companies where like, there's this expectation that like the manager is literally just there as like an extension of HR to manage someone's career. And like all the technical leadership goes into like the staff up level. Um, so one thing I do think that needs to happen is like when you're hiring or when you're thinking about promoting, like there does have to be a very like clear ladder. And there also needs to be a very clear set of expectations that is very, very transparent. If it's in the hiring, then it needs to be transparent among all the people involved in that panel. If it's like in the promotion ladder, then like, I feel the company should kind of make that available. Like it shouldn't be hidden what the promotion processes and what the expectations are going up um, like the different levels, because I feel like a lot of times, like, um, this thing of like, when there's that kind of ambiguity, there's also a lot of room for bias. And it's also like uncomfortable on both like the candidate and also the person who's seeking promotion, because like, if you don't give them clear feedback, like, for example, um, we wanted to see more in this category. And if, if the feedback is also inconsistent between candidates, to me, that kind of says like the person doesn't know what they're looking for. And like, they're potentially like biasing kind of both the promotion and like the hiring the interviewing. It's just like, some of this is like resonating because like, we've also kind of struggled like both at the staff and the manager level to kind of figure out like, what is the right mapping of like technical and people skills to the candidate that we want, both in terms of hiring externally and also like promoting within. But sometimes like, I feel like when there's not a clear like criteria 
so, some things essentially become like sort of just like dog whistles for like not wanting to incorporate like diversity of experience or like taking a chance on someone who might fully be, be capable for that role. So I, I feel very strongly on this. Like there should always be transparency and people should always be aligned in terms of what the expectation is for both promotion and for like bringing people in. Because a lot of times I feel like non-traditional candidates, uh, people of color, like women, like mm -hmm. they fall through the cracks a lot of times when they could be perfectly good sort of leaders or managers and all that in those roles. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to uh, Vin and then we'll go to Tom. And then by the way, if anybody's listening, if you're uh, tuning in on YouTube, if you're tuning in on LinkedIn or on Twitch, if you have a question, feel free to let me know. Let's go ahead and drop it in the comment section of wherever you are. I'll be sure to add you to the queue. Uh, so Vin and after Vin, we'll go to Tom. Yeah, I think as far as, uh, you know, where your friend's at, uh, advice for trying to get into leadership without technical skills, it, it really depends on the organization that you're going up against. Some organizations, especially in finance, they seem like they're a whole lot more comfortable in finance promoting people that don't have the same kind of technical skills into leadership positions. But the reason for that is because the, the technical side of the house is usually really commoditized in finance and in banking, except for fintech, obviously. But for most of the larger banking companies, they're, like I said, the, the technical side's commoditized. And any company you see where they treat data scientists, analysts, engineers of any kind as commodities, where they're trying to minimize the cost as much as possible, they don't, they usually will allow people that don't have as much of a technical background to go into leadership roles. And so there's, there are opportunities, but it's just, it's really company specific. And the way data science is hard leaning right now, and in a lot of ways, I agree with this, is to put people who were data scientists into data science leadership roles and to try to promote because, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One of them is we have no leaders. I mean, the number of data scientists who are also trained, mentored leaders with experience in leadership roles, it's so small. If you ask for 10 years of leadership experience in a data scientist, you just narrowed the pool down to, I don't know, 50 people. It's, it's not that small, but you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's bad. And so we have directors who have two years of leadership experience and 10 years of data science experience. We have people at the C-suite level who have five years total experience. And it's, it's problematic for us because we need to train leaders. We need to promote leaders in order to get them in front of mentors. Because if you're at a manager level and you have aspirations to go to the C-suite, you need to have a mentor who's at the C-suite level in order to bring you into that role. Because there's just no... Like there's no training curriculum for that. And so the, that's why data science is just slammed so hard into bringing leaders up, especially in larger companies, trying to bring leadership up, training data scientists to be great leaders, because we have a technical advisory role that we have to play for senior leadership and for the C-suite. And that's at every level, because at the management level, you're talking to other managers and other organizations director, VP, you're going level to level in other organizations and you're teaching. 
what data science can do, what kind of problems can it solve, what opportunities are there for applying the technology, what are the pitfalls, how do we integrate, I mean, just all of these pieces of institutional knowledge don't get there if all of your data science technical know-how is at the bottom floor. And so that's why you're seeing so much of this, even though in some ways it's nonsensical because yeah, you're right. A director's not writing code. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, I am still technical, but no, I'm not writing code. I, well, okay. I am, but I don't like, that's not my mainline gig and you wouldn't want me writing, you know, a ton of your code anymore. It, it's just not what I do, but if I didn't understand the research side, if I couldn't implement a structured research life cycle, if I didn't understand how technical skills need to be layered in order for an organization to be built up who can meet particular types of project. I mean, you're hearing like you need to have a technical understanding to be at this phase that we're in right now, most businesses where we're building out the capability. And so it's kind of a long-winded answer to say, yeah, it's not fair, but we're kind of, this is what we have to do. Even though there are definitely some people that are being pushed out and to Makiko's point, a lot of times, you know, that uh, there's a uh, slant, I want to say, to who's called not technical enough, which is, you know, something that we have to separate out from what's happening right now. But at the same time, this is a necessity. We have to, we just don't have any data science leaders. And the only way we're going to get the know-how up the food chain is by doing this. Thank you so much. Uh, let's go to Tom, and then after Tom, we'll go to uh, Costa. And um, if you guys got questions, if you're, you know, uh, joining this on LinkedIn or on YouTube or on Twitch, if you got a question, let me know. Or even right here in the room. Um, I, I, if there's no questions, I'd like to explore the, I guess the flip side of this question is people who are in, uh, I guess, earlier stages in their career. How we talked about it a little bit, but let's talk about how to decide where to go. Like, is is it tech lead for me? Like, how do I know that that's where I want to go? Or is business lead for me? How do I know that that's where I want to go? Or is data science for me? Should I just leave the field off the other? Um, uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Tom and then Coastal. So um, I want to tell explain something before I go into this to our illustrious group here. <clears throat> Ninety percent of the time, I'm communicating in one of two modes: confession or encouragement. And when, even when I'm doing the confession, it's with a motivation to be encouraging. So if I hadn't listened to Vin go before me, I might've been completely distracted by the chat because it has gone off the rails. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying our chat time has gone off the rails and it's too much fun. And it's sad that the YouTube crowd can't see it, but anyway. <laughs> Then I agreed with all your points and I'm hoping what I'm gonna say is gonna to add to it. And Harpreet, if at one point you need to mute me, I will take it as a kind suggestion and I will be glad to stop. Um, and I'm not sure this is gonna come out in the best order, but I, I just wanna say this to all of us and anyone that might be listening live or in the recording. If you get rejected because of an interview, because I care for you, I'm begging you, please do not take it personally. And if you want to go look up some of the most encouraging stuff written about data science interviews, 
please go to our ultra tall friend. You can't tell, but he's six foot six, the Kiwi in Great Britain, Andrew Jones. I think some of his encouragements about interviewing for data science are spot on. And I, I might rapid fire some of my more embarrassing situations and in interviews. <clears throat> I've been promised the world after an interview and then been completely ghosted. Uh, one of the more funny ones was uh, the recruiter came back to me with his tail between his legs after telling me I was perfect for this role and said, oh, this main guy at that company said, we see Tom as a new data scientist. And I went, okay. And I said, well, who are we looking at next? He said, that doesn't bother you? And I said, dude, if we'd have been sitting in the office together, I would have just looked over at you and said next. Because seriously, I'm 60 years old now. And in freshman physics lab, 1980, I was already doing data science, least regression by hand on dirty physics data. And I'm like, I was doing data science before it was called data science. And you think I'm new just because I only recently had data science role titles? Please, I don't want to work for you. It's so, Ben, if you hadn't gone first, I couldn't have as eloquently said what Ben said. Navi, the reason people are asking those kind of questions and Serge, the reason people are asking those kind of questions was best answered by Ben. I was on a first name uh, email frequently basis with a past CEO. I'm not going to mention the company because it's still a good company, but unfortunately that CEO that I was having great communications with about data science too, I just said, hey, I think your new plan's pretty cool, but I don't think you want data science reporting to IT. I never heard from her again. <laughs> In fact, I think I might've been targeted by her after that. Anyway, guys, if you're not valued for your background, please, I'm begging you as your friend, just say next. Keep going around till you find the ideal culture, the ideal place where they value the way you think, the way you do things. And, but of course, I'll always encourage this, remain open to being humble. We're there to be servants to the greater organization, to show them how to get the best return on data. And if we just show we really care to explain our arts to them and to help them appreciate what we're trying to do and to really make our amazing arts count for their bottom line, they're gonna see it, they're gonna appreciate it. One thing I had to learn the hard way though is you have to be comfortable with releasing crap. <laughs> the sooner you give them something, the sooner you can start getting feedback to make sure you're not just building your baby and wandering off in the weeds away from what they really want and need. So talk to them a lot, release crap as soon as possible so they can say, oh, I love this, or no, you're, that's not where I was thinking of going, and then work it out. The frequent feedback is what you need when you're starting to help your group, your greater company get a return on data. Okay, Harpreet didn't mute me, and I'm just hoping what I shared was of some value to all of you. Now I'm gonna go back and watch, uh, catch up on this um, gourmet donut type talk in the chat. Thanks, Harpreet.
Um, thank you so much. Yes, a lot of good conversation in the chat around fried, fried doughy goods. Uh, yeah, fried doughy goods. Uh, love doing it. Tom, Captain there. Tom, thank you so much. I no, really appreciate that. Uh, absolutely encourage anyone who's coming from a uh, non-traditional two data science background to check out a book called Range. I think it's Daniel Epstein. It's called Why a Generalist Triumph in a Specialized World. It's something to that effect. Um, and just makes the case for why having a diverse background is really what's going to make you excited. So definitely check out that book. 100% happily recommend it. Um, let's go to um, let's go to Costa. And then also, Tom, to, to your point, you're talking about uh, uh, talking to people. Uh, one thing that I've uh, learned from Mark in a recent podcast that Mark Freeman was on with uh, Demetrius from MLOps community, Mark was talking about this tribe framework. I think he's talked about it in other platforms too. But the first thing in the tribe framework is talk. Talk to your stakeholders, understand what it is that they want. Tom, thank you so much. Let's go to Costa. Um, then after Costa, let's go to a question that Vivian had um, that was uh, touching back on what we were talking about earlier. So Costa, go for it. So I just want to kind of separate the, like create a bit of a distinction between technical knowledge, technical background and previous roles as a data scientist, right? They're, they're two fundamentally different things, right? Uh, I think we're, often we conflate, oh, they must have worked as a data scientist for X number of years because we're, that's an easy proxy when we're, when we're creating a, uh, you know, when you've got a recruiter who's not a technical recruiter, right? Who doesn't have an understanding of, of the technology and they kind of create a recruitment package that's, oh, we've got to look for someone with technical experience for this data science leadership role. Have they been a data scientist and do they have leadership potential? Kind of becomes the question, which isn't necessarily the right question to ask. The question kind of becomes, do they need to be guiding the team from a people management standpoint? Do they need to be guiding the team from a strategic standpoint? Um, do they need to be guiding the team from like a product roadmap standpoint, right? Three very different kinds of leadership and three very necessary parts of leadership in a team, right? So you need to, and, and I'm talking more from the product world than say the uh, experimental um, data science kind of world search to answer your question. Yes, there are technical recruiters. It's really strange. And uh, we, we have one at, at at our at our company here, and he specializes a bit more in in specific fields of technology, and that really helps because he kind of understands the conversation a bit better. So being able to fine grain what we're actually looking for, it allows him to cast a wider net than we usually would be able to. But kind of back on point, right? Like, so there's the three kinds of leadership that you need. You need the people management skills. That's one side of it. There's the product skills and the product skills essentially needs an understanding of the customer, the problem, being able to phrase the customer voice, right? Being able to, to manage that into a product roadmap. That's a totally different kind of leadership. And then the third side is the technical leadership, right? Now, what we've found in the product side is, and this doesn't come across as much when you have, you know, model decisions continue on with the business kind of, uh, kind of thing. This, I'm talking about more long running. Okay, we have this product that's going to run for years and years, and we're going to start accruing tech debt. We're going to start seeing that there are now not just uh, user input to say what the next features need to be, but also the technical limitations that we need to go back and, and redesign, right? And in order to do that, you need a technical understanding, right? And you don't necessarily need to have a data scientist to do that, 
right? There are plenty of people in and in, in the electronics and embedded embedded systems world. We call them systems engineers, right? Um, they they'd be fantastic for that kind of role, right? And it's just that ability to break down the problem and appreciate the technical blockers behind it, right? And be able to communicate that uh, across the teams and across the product team and get get some hindsight. Otherwise, what you end up doing is you end up going through this, essentially this open loop, right? Where the only closed loop is your user feedback at the end of the day, which is great, but you're going to end up with all of this spaghetti code in this product that's ill-built for the systems, but reasonably built for the user, right? So that's kind of where the stress comes in when you say, okay, we need to stress on, we need some technical skills in leadership because you need that combination of people management, a little bit of technical leadership, a little bit of uh, product leadership, right? Um, and again, this this is different when you're talking about like senior C-suite, uh, C-suite strategic uh, uh, leadership. And it's different when you're talking about, hey, there's this product tech lead kind of role. Um, it's always going to differ, right? But if you lack, if you don't have that balance, that's where you miss out, right? Um, but again, it's not specifically about have you been in data science. The moment we start asking that question of have you had a data science role for more than five years, you're forgetting how young those kinds of roles actually are. You're forgetting how young that industry entirely is, right? Um, so it's kind of a poor proxy for do they have the right technical understanding and technical background to solve the problems that we have. Um, and I guess you've got to understand what's your gap in leadership. And that's going to change from company to company. Uh, and if you don't have a gap in, in leadership that actually needs technical skills, then maybe you don't need someone with that strong technical background to fill in that leadership role. Right, so. Thank you very much. Maybe you have to bring back a lot of uh, good advice there. Uh, should we circle them back to, uh, to the recording? It's available on YouTube. Um, let's go to Vivian um, for a question that she has to go for. Okay, so changing gears quite a bit here. Um, just I read an article about Apple announcing their new mixed reality device and wondering what people think about it, what the future of VR, AR, MR is. Um, and also disclaimer here, I got a promotion, it works. And now I work on the Oculus team, so I will be taking notes about everything you guys say. Okay, just kidding, I won't, but. So, congratulations, you haven't been at Facebook for how long? Like, like less than six months or something like that? Or has it been um, a lot longer? It was like July last year. July. Almost a year already promoted. Damn, that's what's up. Uh, congratulations. Um, that'd be an interesting job to have as like, a mixed reality like developer. It would be interesting. But um, yeah, I would love to hear if anybody has any um, uh, perspective here. Uh, Tina, you just sit there. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Yep. So I actually worked um, on Oculus as well. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yep. So I was there for about a year or so. Um, I was on the growth team and then there was a merge with, um, I think it was just like a merge in general. Now the growth team, I don't actually know what happened. <laughs> but yeah, so I was working on Oculus um, and I think I'm very biased as well. Like I think this is where 
the company has put its stake in like a very it's like very very obvious that they like this is where they really want to invest in and i think it makes a lot of sense as as the next computing device i do think it makes a lot of sense um however it still is very difficult i think like in terms of it's 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 at a stage in which it's Every, like you don't know who's gonna win this game. I think it's gonna happen, but I don't know who it is that's gonna actually be the person who like actually makes a device that has true product market fit, which I think it's not there yet for anybody. Um, and I, another thing is like on the AR side is pretty interesting because I think AR is gonna be much more widely adopted than VR is. Like VR, I think it has very specific use cases that may not be something that is gonna be as widespread. Um, AR technology, I think it's also a lot there's there's a lot more going on there that we may that we may think and i think in the next few years as well like there's going to be a lot of products that are going to be released in that state so i have my if i were to bet i would be betting on the ar side to be like widely adopted and when you talk and i heard you say like as the next computing device uh, computing device when i think of like obviously like, like i don't know what that's about apple watch or like a, a you know or like a wearable device type of thing not really like I don't really consider these to be like computing devices. So I guess what does that what does that mean in this context as office being kind of like the next computing device? Does that mean it'll be like the next thing that we have like like you know the phone is definitely a computing device, right? Um, is that kind of what you mean by that? Uh, that's what I think. So yeah, like I that's what I think. I think wearable watches and stuff, they do not necessarily computing devices. They're helpful and they're wearables. Um, but something that I think will very much replace the cell phone. Um, and I think that's going to be on the AR side, like Oculus, we're like on the VR side. Um, I think it's going to be very specific to certain use cases. I don't think people are necessarily going to sit there every night and go into the metaverse <laughs> and then just like not leave um, their house. I, I think that's, I would actually be quite bad if that were to occur. Uh, but no, I don't think that, but on the, I do think AR is going to replace cell phones at some point. Very much, Tina. Um, if you guys are interested in hearing more about uh, AR, I did a couple of um, interviews. One of them was with uh, Paul, um, Paul uh, McLaughlin. He talked a lot about AR, um, so definitely check that out. I also did a book with um, uh, Irina Cronin. Uh, we talked a lot about augmented reality in that episode too. So those are two episodes to check out if you, the listener, are interested. Um, let's hear from. Uh, let's, let's hear from. From uh, Ken on this, I'm thinking on Ken. <laughs> uh, Ken, what are your thoughts on uh, on AR, VR? I'm gonna finish my cucumber. Um, I, I think it's an interesting space. I, I, I remember when the first Oculus commercials were coming out after the acquisition from Meta, and I thought it was really interesting. There's like one commercial where two people are like clearly playing online with each other, but they hear that they're in like apartments right next door and they're like complaining about the sounds from each other person. And I thought it was really strange because they could literally just like go next door and meet the other person and get those benefits of interaction. And to me, I think it's incredible to connect with the world virtually. I mean, like I have a, a legitimate business that is through complete virtual connection. But I'm also on the other side of that where I believe that a lot of this, like, is really bad for our mental health. It's isolationist. Like, we need people. We need to interact with people socially. 
we need to have space away from notifications and a lot of these other things to be able to um, to really live fulfilled lives and to find happiness in those types of things. So I view a lot of social media, augmented reality, virtual reality as something that detracts from peace of mind and is highly addictive and is dangerous in some sense. And um, I, I'm a little fearful of the direction that goes if that becomes even increasingly more mainstream. I mean, I think all of these things are tools and if you have the willpower to use it so that it can benefit you, they can be unbelievably valuable. But you know, if we're talking about kids, we're talking about um, you know, different groups that are immersed in this technology from you know, the moment they wake up to the minute they go to sleep, I, I don't really know. Um, I don't really know how I feel about that. I, I think that the solution probably is a technology related solution. And I've seen a lot of stuff, you know, even I have an Oculus, right? I've seen a lot of stuff with mindfulness and meditation and those types of things within the apps. I think that's a good start. I just don't really know where it goes. And I'm a little more bearish um, that I am bullish associated with the, the trajectory, just associated with the like personal challenges, not about what the, like the obvious benefits of the technologies are. Ken, thank you so much. Um, there's a show on, um, on Amazon Prime called The Feed. Have you seen that video? The Feed, yeah. That, that show I think takes it to like the act, like the extreme, like with, with the metaverse and AR, VR type stuff. Uh, super, super interesting. I uh, highly recommend checking it out. Let's hear from Coastal, but let's, yeah, let's get a Coastal perspective coming kind of from like that robotics angle. Yeah, um, okay. So I want to add a little corollary to our old friend Arthur C. Clarke, right? He talks about any, you know, any technology sufficiently advanced seems like magic, right? There's a corollary to that. Anything that any, any technology that we look at in science fiction and someone goes, hmm, damn, that's cool. I want that. We're going to work on it. As a race, someone is going to work on it. As, a, as, a, as humanity, someone will be working on it. Someone has seen Iron Man and gone, damn, I'm making my life mission to bring those hollow, you know, what was it, that hollow phone of his, to real life someone's bringing those i'd love it if someone brings those screens that float around in front of you to real life like a, a heads up display in your sunglasses i'd love that right like someone's gonna do it like that's where watches apple watches and stuff came from we've had that in movies for decades right james bond talking into his phone and you know through his wristwatch and stuff like that it's always about that romanticism of technology right we love it we absolutely love it so it's going to happen. That's, I have no doubt about that, right? The bit that I'm torn about is how do we use it and how do we make it actually significantly more useful, right? Where it really, really helps is, uh, it, you're actually exactly right, it's in the robotics space, right? It's how do I use 20 robots out in the field remotely and be able to access the data in a way that's conducive to a human interacting with it, right? How do we design complex systems? How do we debug complex systems uh, from very far away, right? Um, those are problems that this can really help with. How do we train people? Um, essentially, think about, think about training for, for engineers. As they're looking at a system, you can get 
various sensors, various histories of data coming uh, straight into, hey, why is this part of my nuclear power plant, for example, uh, breaking down? And I don't have to be the person there in front of the nuclear fuel rods risking my life because I've got robots doing that for me. And that data is fed through in a, in a way that I can actually action on it, right? How do we bring that immersively to the real world is that's where it's really going to help. Here's this counter argument and the counter risk. Um, and I've seen this with defense, right? Like we, we were talking about using augmented reality to help troops in the field, uh, you know, just getting real-time data assessment. There is this thing essentially where you've got data overload, right? There's only so much data that we can actually actively process. There's a subconscious processing of data that's, that's different to your conscious processing of data. You end up with analysis paralysis at a minute to minute level, right? That's one of the risks is how do you balance that? So it's all about execution, right? It's, it's exactly like our phone, there's no different, right? You can have the greatest phone and you can have a rubbish app or you can have a great app, right? It comes down to how we design the apps and how we use it uh, to the best of its ability, right? The other side of that is the addiction side, like Ken was talking about, right? Uh, with a phone, you can put it away. It's not in your face, right? Uh, with something that literally is on your face, that can get considerably more challenging, right? But it's such a wide, wild world out there, right? Like some people find that they love being able to respond on their, on their watch. Whereas for me, in order to put my phone away, right? I got a watch that gives me notifications. Why? Because I can look at a notification and say, oh, that's someone's messaged me. I can get back to that later. That's actually how I broke the, the phone must respond immediately kind of cycle, right? I, I grew up with Messenger and MSN and uh, you know Facebook and stuff like that. That was, that was my generation where we had instant messaging was the norm for communication with all of our friends. So instantly responding was huge. Um, and using a technology like a wristwatch that only gives you the notification, but no capability to respond was a good way to do that, right? So there's gonna be people who find good uses for AR in the regular day-to-day -day life space, but then there are all these challenges, data overload, addiction to, uh, addiction to the interaction, um, but there are benefits to be had. Like there are genuine cases where you can train a doctor, right? What if you had a, what if you had a surgeon right? Wearing, wearing the right equipment, the right uh, AR glasses, right? And feeding that data back to three or four students or, or practicing surgeons who are trying to develop their skills who are working with dummy models or, you know, haptic feedback VR systems, right? But they're able to see the real surgery happening in real time and try to make those same decisions as they go, right? What, how does that increase their experience? Because we know with like surgeons, until you've done 75 to 100 of the same surgery, your expertise in that area doesn't really sink in, right? Um, so there's all of these use cases where augmented reality, it's really promising. But the fact of the matter is it's not gonna happen because it's promising. It's not gonna not happen because it's addictive. It's gonna happen because someone saw it in Iron Man and went, damn, that's cool, I want that, right? We're obsessed with this romanticization of technology and that's why it's gonna happen. I'd be curious to like, like know what the monetization strategies are for like something like this, right? Because um, I don't know, is it going to be used as just like another way to get me ads or certain ads, right? Like that's a real concern of mine because uh, 
like if you allow third-party developers to develop stuff for this device, then how, how are they monetizing? What's their strategy? Are they trying to buy my attention? Because if people are trying to buy your attention, uh, when you know the, the things attached to your reality, that's kind of scary. Um, so let's uh, let's hear from Vin. Uh, Cam says you gotta go and get donuts. Ken, get your donuts. But uh, Ken, you're still taking over next week, I believe. Yes, awesome. Ken's taking over on the range for you next week. I'll be flying back from uh, from Denver, so y'all uh, definitely. You got to give me a that. quick training, but um, more than yeah, happy to. yeah, absolutely, man. It's easy. Just this is your training. <laughs> Ken, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for taking over next week. Again, let's hear from you. From what I understand about the Apple, the actual Apple headset, the the consensus was it's really cool. It's got functionality, but it's looking for a reason to be adopted. And I think that's, if you talk about like every platform that's out there right now, that's the problem is the, the technology is still about 18 months away from where people will, where it, you know, it's functional enough right now that it, you can use it. But there's a lot of people saying the cameras need to improve. The screens need to improve in quality. There needs to be like there are little tweaks and technology pieces that just aren't good enough yet for wider for the wider audience. And then the other part is it doesn't sound like there's a like Apple figured out how to make the iPhone something everyone wanted to have because there were things in there and like the App Store was a big piece of it and the novelty of being able to do everything that you could do with that device. And it doesn't sound like Apple's done that with their headset yet. And what's really interesting is in business use cases, this makes so much sense. There are mechanics that use headsets and they get training and real-time guidance on how to do repairs from the manufacturer. So now a mechanic that is somewhat familiar with like a Ford vehicle can put their headset on and take like in front of them training where there's sort of this mixed reality that they're experiencing and they're able to do fixes with the instruction manual basically overlaid in front of what it is that they're building. So there's, you know, when you say there's no, you know, I, I don't mean like there's no killer app for this, that there's no use case for it because there are obviously a lot of them, but it feels like everyone's dropping their headset out there and saying, okay, what do you think you can do with this? And at some point you have to stop giving it to developers and saying, Hey, can you figure out what to do with this? And there has to be some sort of an application to it that makes it, makes it sticky. It makes it so that people want to spend money on it. Because for most people, this is going to be like, you could go on a vacation or you could buy this headset. And to get over the, you know, people like me, I'm just an idiot. I'll buy it. I'm stupid. I, you know, and I understand that I suffer from poor, poor impulse control. And that's the only reason why I buy these things. So the, you know, the target audience like me that just, we're going to go buy it. We're going to play with it. We're going to figure out what we can do with it. You can't rely on us. We're not enough. There has to be something else on the other end of it. And if you look at what Disney's done with Disneyland's sort of augmented reality, where they have an app that's just dumb, simple started out as just, here's a map to Disneyland. So when you were at the parks, you could walk around, you knew where things were. Then all of a sudden you had ride wait times. Then you could order food. And then you could use Genie Plus. And now you could book out, like plan out your day with these fast passes and different types of experiences that you want. And then you can, you know, and it's just that incremental creeping 
where they're taking a phone literally as far as it can go. And I think companies like Disneyland have, or Disney have this really compelling, you know, I'm wondering if there's something under the covers because they have a robotics lab. They have a, an extraordinarily advanced robotics capability. They published for a while. And then I guess somebody said, no, stop. And they haven't published anything publicly that I've seen for a while, but they actually have a fairly advanced group. And I'm wondering if something like that is the the business that's actually going to create either the thing that makes Apple's and Meta's headsets sticky, or if they've got something that they're working on from a technology standpoint, that once they exhaust the utility of a phone, they transition into it because they've been playing around with wearables. They've been there's a lot of stuff that they've been working on under the covers. And that's kind of where my head's at is, is there, is there another company that's sort of stalking and they've figured out what the application is and now they're building the hardware towards that use case? Because that would be an interesting, you know, show up and kind of take market share. Ben, thank you very much. Uh, Vivian, hopefully you have some uh, good good notes there. And as always, this is recorded. So if you want to go back to the YouTube immediately after this, you can go and get those notes. Uh, transcription should be up in a couple of days too. Um, you guys, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I've got to get going. So I appreciate you guys hanging out. Thank you so much for all of you guys for showing up. Happy episode today. A lot of a lot of folks stopping by, man. So I appreciate you guys coming and hanging out. Uh, be sure to tune into the episode that I released today with Professor Dr. David Spiegelhalter. He's the author of uh, The Art of Statistics, as well as COVID by Numbers. He's a statistics professor over at Cambridge University. And um, yeah, he's, he was, you know, I was introduced to him from uh, Marcus Dussel, two guys who uh, look up to because I used to watch their shit on BBC growing up. So that was super cool to, to be able to chat with them. And, you know, the fact that I never thought in my life of talking to professors from Oxford or Cambridge. So that was pretty cool. Um, definitely tune into that. Huge shout out to the sponsor, the MLOps World Conference Machine Learning and Production. Uh, conference happened June 7th through June 10th in Toronto. Be sure to go and get your tickets. Use the discount code HARPREET for 15% off. Uh, that's it for this, guys. If you're in Denver, let me know. Shoot me a message. Message me on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email. I'll be in Denver the 23rd to the 26th. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys. And Harper, real quick, I think we should thank Vivian for stooping down to show up to this community again, even though she's a big shot at Meta now. So honorific to have her show up, you know. I'm going to really. try more. I just keep having busy Fridays, you know, and it's like technically yeah. still a work day. So you know. that's, that's how you say you get promoted. Keep grinding. Vivian, congratulations again. That's so dope. That's uh, so awesome. Um, excited for you and uh, looking forward to uh, to getting one of these futuristic Oculuses and then telling people like, hey, I know who helped build this thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Vivian, thanks so much. You guys take care. Have a good rest of the evening. Have a great afternoon, weekend, wherever it is. You got, and remember, friends, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something? Cheers.